Hello there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, Biden's gaffe during his CNN town hall where he promised to protect Taiwan. We're going to talk about a military coup in Sudan and crisis that is currently befalling Eswatini. All that and more coming up. So, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has currently attended, well, not currently, but she did attend, her final EU summit. Uh, Speaking of summits, the G20 summit is going to be happening in Rome this week. Uh, Apparently, there's a major emphasis on climate change, but I have a feeling none of them are going to change for the climate. That's my estimation, based off of my observations. Uh... Vice President Kamala Harris is currently set to meet with Emmanuel Macron sometime in November following a talk that Macron and Biden had uh, this last week. And in Guatemala, there have been two days of protests and riots. Uh, Well, three probably now. Uh, The government has responded to these by instituting a month-long curfew from dusk till dawn. Well, from dawn till dusk, I should say. Because, well, no, from dusk till dawn, because you're not allowed to be out when the sun goes down, but you can come back out when the sun comes up, so from dusk till dawn, I guess that works. Uh, but back to a topic we talked about last week, uh, the Houthi, uh, how would I say, offensive near Marib. Uh, they're suffering some really heavy casualties, I gotta say. Over 260 Houthi fighters have been killed in that offensive over the last four days by the Saudi-backed coalition, and it was almost a thousand the last time we looked at it. So the numbers have gone down, but so too has the number of fighters that they have to lose. And we'll, we'll see if they're able to make some worthy gains from this offensive, because they're taking heavy losses. Um, so we'll, we'll keep our eye on this. This might just be the climax of this war. Not entirely sure yet, but it could be. So I'll keep my eyes on it. In the neighborhood, Israel has unveiled plans for 1,300 new settlements in the West Bank, uh, a region highly disputed between Israel and Palestine, as it is largely inhabited by Palestinians who want it to be a part of a future Palestinian state. Uh, if they can't have, you know, the rest of the territory that Israel is a part of, you know. Uh, overlapping claims and crimes committed on two sides, with one side being stronger than the other right now. So the, the Israelis are sort of just walking all over the Palestinians. And But Palestine is gaining some moderate levels of foreign support. Uh, if from nowhere else, then the Middle East itself, but it remains to be seen if any one of those countries in the Middle East opposed to Israel will put their full weight behind the Palestinians, 
rather than just using them as a political tool to justify getting at Israel for this or that offense that Israel causes them. That'll be an interesting game changer should it ever happen. Uh, because that'll probably mean war, if anything else. Uh, but at the very least, the very least, we can see that the, well, I guess the best way to put it is ethnic cleansing of Palestinian territories is continuing. Uh, and it seems like the Israelis are really carving out the space for themselves. That's what it seems like. Um, and I honestly feel rather conflicted about that. I mean, they can do what they want with their state, but wow. Wow. We'll, we'll see how far this goes. We'll see how far this goes. Whether or not they're able to take the entire territory that is Israel and turn it into a non-Muslim state. And, and I mean non-Muslim as in they've removed all the people who happen to be Muslim from the, the state. Or if there's significant pushback and they end up in a full-scale war. Which is also possible, but for the time being, we'll just have to observe. Um, meanwhile, in Europe, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has accused the U.S. and the EU of trying to meddle in the country's upcoming election. Pakistan's foreign minister has made his first visit to the Islamic State of uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, so, further cementing my viewpoint, my observation that. Afghanistan has all the legitimacy and recognition that it needs because its neighbors have given it all the legitimacy and recognition that it needs and it's a landlocked country so that that's that's about it this basically wraps up that whole um, loose end complaint from those who lost the war for us uh, namely those who are basically trying to tell Afghanistan how they're supposed to run their country even though they lost the war with Afghanistan. It's a very strange thing to observe and watch people do, but that's what's been done. And there's been people talking about, oh, they, they don't have legitimacy right now, but or they don't have international recognition. It seems like they have all the legitimacy and international recognition that they need to effectively run their state that they've reacquired from the U.S., who invaded them. So, once again, I am right. And I will do my best to continue being right for you, my lovely listeners. Uh, so that's Pakistan. The Venezuelan leader, though, Nicolas Maduro, uh, we talked about him over these past few weeks. He was in talks over the future of Venezuela in Mexico City between him and Juan Guaido, the opposition leader, um, but this isn't about those talks, this is about something new, uh, where he has said that the country, Venezuela, needs to lift relations with Colombia and repair diplomatic ties. So he's talking about uh, improving their relations between the two countries. Uh, if you remember, a few months ago, there were politicians in Venezuela who were openly discussing the prospect of war with Colombia, so... Uh, I can I can certainly see based off of my observations where this might be coming from. Uh, seems definitely don't want to go over the edge there, 
uh, and I, I was shocked that, that that was the language people were using in this day and age. We're not we're not talking about the eighteen seven eighteen hundreds where war was just on the table at all times. Where they sounded like Venezuela wanted all the smoke. I guess Colombia was ready to give it, I suppose. But Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, now wants to sort of pull them back from that. Or at least try to. We'll see how successful it is. Because ultimately that sort of depends on Colombia's cooperation as well. I think they'll cooperate, but you never know. So, very interesting. Uh... Now, there's also the UK and New Zealand who have signed a new trade deal, bringing them ever closer to that wonderful, wonderful third British Empire. They call it Kanzuk. And I got one more can you say? They're getting closer. And it was to be expected, especially since uh, ever since Britain left the EU, that they would lean on other countries for trade, uh, starting with their former imperial subjects. Uh, I believe they're still in talks for the U.S. trade deal uh, for the time being. Uh, I don't know if they'll ever get that one at this point. Um, but um, <laughs> but um, they are, at the very least, they're improving trade ties with countries like Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, the principal members of what would be Kanzuk. So that's good for them, and it'll definitely bolster their economy without making them dependent on Europe. And it would really reestablish that sort of counterbalance that the British made themselves into when they expanded into empire, where before, powers on the continent would just start running rampant, and Britain would sort of uh, they sort of look at it and wouldn't be able to do much. They would try, but uh, France and other continental powers were just a bit too much for them to handle, uh, especially after the British lost the Hundred Years' War. But when the British expanded into an empire, they had the strength and the economic fortitude, courtesy of that empire, to sort of withstand those major European wars and act as a counterbalancing force. So what it looks like is we're seeing that reestablishment of their economic uh, insulation from Europe. Uh, not separation from Europe, they're not usually separated, but the insulation that they have by having options away from Europe uh, that are perennially under their control. Now, Canada's not quite under their control yet. Australia and New Zealand aren't under their control yet. But they seem to be reestablishing that insulation. And when we look around the world and we see conflict on the horizon, it's probably a safe bet to say that Europe isn't going to be excluded from that. And we just can't exactly see where the conflict is going to be. Well, we, we can see where it's going to be in one part in Europe, and that's the east, where the Russians are going to finish their business in Ukraine, and they're going to make their moves for uh, the Baltics. But other wars in Europe... Well, actually, no. We, we, what am I saying? We, we, we can see where the, most of the conflicts are going to occur anyway. 
Um, there's obviously Russia and the reacquisition of the former Soviet states, Belarus, a willing participant, the Baltics and Ukraine, uh, definitely not. But they're not going to be given much of a say in that matter. They're going to get eaten, and there's going to be war over that. Depending on how Russia conducts that business, there's going to be a showdown between Turkey and France in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, that may or may not evolve into a war, uh, based on whether or not the French back down when the Turks stand back up on the issue. So they're, sort of, they're sort of sitting down, but they're not out. They're building up their navy. And so when they feel ready to challenge the French, or challenge anybody for supremacy over the Eastern Med again, and the French come to try to stop them, that will be the moment where there'll either be war or a new status quo. Uh, through a relatively peaceful transfer of power to Turkey. And I guess that can still happen after a war, but the Turks would still have their fleet in the first option. But, uh, the, the, the peaceful option, I should say. But we'll, we'll have to see, because I'm not entirely sure if that one will be a war, or if it'll just be a really tense moment that leads to a change, because one side is more willing to uh, fight over the issue, and the other side probably won't be, and that side is probably going to be France, because um, Turkey really wants this. Um, but Greece might force the issue, though. There might be war with Turkey and Greece. Um, probably going to be a showdown between Turkey and Iran at some point. But, uh, well, I guess, I guess at this point, there might even be a showdown between France and Britain over the English Channel. And it's weird to say at this point in time, but that's becoming a possibility. The animosity has certainly been rebuilt, at least on the French side it has been. And in time, that'll spawn similar animosities on the British side. And the British will look out. They'll see the French expanding their sphere of influence in Africa and the Middle East. And they'll say, we need our empire back. And that'll reignite a great power, an old great power conflict and rivalry uh, between the British and the French. And that'll definitely be something to see. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it seems like the UK is reassuming its historic role post-empire. Uh, well, post-establishment of an empire, not post-empire. They lost that role post-empire. But post-establishment of an empire, they were the balancer of Europe. So it seems like they're reasserting the economic insulation that they need to be that balancer of Europe just in time for an era of renewed conflict, uh, great power or not. It just seems like conf general conflict is sort of sweeping over the world right now. We'll have to see how it goes, because I, so I can't really project my uh, observations. I can't give my speculations for that many countries beyond the sort of the wall, the veil of conflict that a lot of countries are going to go through. Um, so I can, I, for some countries like potentially China and Russia, I see them expanding out. I see a potential for a colonial future for China. And I see the British and the French going back to their colonial roots. Uh, that's what I see. But for other countries like, say, Turkey, Israel, Iran, I 
there's conflict in the way. I can't project uh, where they're going to go. I can project where they can go. But ultimately, that's going to depend on how the conflicts go down. Will Turkey rule the Eastern Med? That depends on whether or not they have to fight a war over it. Uh, or if they fight a war, that depends on if they're going to win the war. It's pretty hard to look forward when you have that in the way. But I feel like once we sort of get on the other side of these uh, emerging conflicts around the world, we'll sort of be able to get a clear picture of where we're heading. Uh, so I'll do my best for the time being. But uh, yes, speaking of conflict, uh, the end of one in Afghanistan, the Russians, uh, they had a meeting with Afghanistani leaders and they've been calling for international aid for Afghanistan. And this, this is a international thing where a bunch of leaders met with the leaders of Afghanistan and it was Russia who hosted these meetings and they were the ones who called for international aid for Afghanistan. Um, so the, there's that. The U.S. wasn't there, but uh, they promised to be there in future events. I don't think they're going to do that. Uh, but there's that. And back to other conflict... Japanese Prime Minister Kishida has ordered emergency plans and preparations to be made for emergency situations. Uh, following, following North Korea's recent ballistic missile launches. And if that doesn't spell conflict, I don't know what does. And that's definitely another conflict zone. And that, depending on the outcome, could reshape all projections because uh, their projections, China's going to be the number one power. Um, if there's a war over Taiwan and they manage, if they manage to lose, because in my opinion, the cards are sort of stacked in their favor on that one. But if they manage to lose that fight, or if some other war breaks out, uh, maybe over the South China Sea or the East China Sea between them and Japan, uh, Japan and the United States against China. If they manage to lose those conflicts, that would completely alter projections. I don't think people would be expecting China to be overtaking the United States if they lose that war, um, or at least uh, you know, throw the projections off by a couple of years. And they'd lose a lot of assets and a lot of their willingness to go to war for the time being. You know, there's always there's always revengeism. You know, uh, you can always get a a Germany effect, <laughs> but um. So, yeah, you can see how conflict sort of messes with your with your speculations. And when you're a boyo like me who specializes in speculations, uh, it makes it hard to see. So, really, all I can, I, can, I can just tell you that these conflicts make it hard to sort of see through uh, into the future without addressing them. Or in the, without a resolution to them, because a lot of them haven't happened yet. But we can see them. And hell, who knows? Maybe they'll just be avoided. Like in the case of Turkey peacefully taking over the Eastern Med. Because maybe one side isn't ready for a fight. Could happen. But that is the... That is the... Rapid Fire News. Uh, looks like Japan and North Korea are getting into it. Just a little bit and... North Korea is a Chinese ally, so I don't know if there'll be a war between the two. I don't expect there to be. I don't know quite what Japan would achieve in a war between them and North Korea. 
but uh, I can certainly guarantee you that these preparations for what is uh, a very veiled, uh, poorly veiled, I'll say, uh, excuse for wartime preparations, um, I have a feeling that they're not just for the Korean Peninsula. I have a feeling that they're going to be dually applicable to situations regarding Taiwan and China. I wholeheartedly believe that. And that leads back to the question I always ask with regards to the Japanese Prime Minister. You might be the guy in charge when China tries to take the island back. Uh, Taiwan, that is. And how do you conduct a losing war? I don't know. Uh, maybe he'll just stay out of it. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case, given their current military plans regarding islands that are close to Taiwan. And it's very understandable that they'd be afraid. You know, they, they have to think about that. Because if you're China, once you've taken Taiwan, your strategic calculus is altered. Now your focus is to secure the area and the islands around Taiwan, and that means the Japanese islands. And those are well within range of your amphibious assault capabilities, especially post-seizure of Taiwan. So, there's a two-way street for conflict over those islands. And while we might look at them as just rocks, the, the people living there, and the countries that are seeking to gain access to them certainly don't view them the same way. Looks like we have conflict and so I'll just do my best to sort of see how those conflicts might break out. Because that's the best I can do. And then I'll project my views as to where countries go. But enough about me projecting and speculating on the future. We have stuff to talk about now. And we'll get into that, uh, the meat, in just a moment. Alright, and we're back. Now we're going to talk about these three stories I have lined up for you. And we'll start with uh, Biden's gaffe in the CNN town hall. Now, I did. I watched it, and for the most part, it was mostly domestic affairs, talking about um, bills and internal politics between him and certain senators and congressmen and whatnot. Um, uh... Yeah, what, what can I say? It was mostly domestic politics and didn't really get into the range of, you know, my line of work until he talked about, well, until he said sort of by accident that he would defend Taiwan. Uh, this was a CNN town hall uh, a couple days ago, and when he was asked about the issue, that is potentially China invading Taiwan, would you defend Taiwan? He said, yes, we have an obligation to do that. Uh, so it was sort of off the cuff, you could tell, because it was sort of the immediate response he gave to the, the question. So, uh, it, I mean, it's sent a lot of waves. It sent a lot of waves that people didn't want. Uh, some, certainly the waves that I didn't want. But waves nonetheless the white house immediately afterwards gave a statement saying that america's relationship with taiwan has not changed and that they still pursue strategic ambiguity uh and the reason they went so far is because that statement does not sound like strategic ambiguity it sounds like uh, some strategic clarity uh and 
certainly not the type of clarity that I want, uh, but a lot of other people do want. But uh, the political class and the military leadership, I should say, the Pentagon, uh, they don't they don't want that. They don't want that. They, or at the very least, they don't want the Chinese to know that. And well, everyone knows now. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but um. The, there were various responses to this. Uh, that was the White House response to Biden saying that we'd defend Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese response, though, was pretty interesting. Expected, but interesting. Uh, their response was that Taiwan was a part of China and that China won't tolerate foreign interference on the issue of Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese also said they, they said that they will not compromise over Taiwan either. Now... In the case of both Biden and the Chinese, I do believe both of them are telling the truth on this one. Um, even though the White House says otherwise, I think Biden in this instance really just said the quiet part out loud. And if we're being honest with ourselves, and by that I mean if I'm being honest with myself, because I'm the outlier here and not wanting to get into a war over that, there is significant political support here for what Biden said, even if people are upset that he said it. Uh, so even though people feel like it was improper for him to come out and say that, there is, to, that is to say that we're, we would defend Taiwan and that we're obligated to do so, there is a pretty large support for doing just that, the action, even though they weren't, they were upset with the words, uh, saying him saying the it was him saying the quiet part out loud. And that's the best way I can put it. Um, but I don't, I don't see him catching flack for promising to defend Taiwan. Not, not his stance. It was him saying it. that. That seems to be the the main criticism here. Not that he would promise to defend Taiwan, but that he would say it out loud in the open for everyone to hear and so those are two separate criticisms uh well two separate potential criticisms and one of them hasn't been made and that is the criticism of promising to protect taiwan at all uh that's that's you know that's my criticism so i guess it's been made but you know <laughs> but again i think both of them are telling the truth he said the quiet part out loud and the Chinese, I believe wholeheartedly when they say that they're not going to compromise on this issue because their actions say that. They are uncompromising on this issue. They're, they won't back down. They're, they're doing military drills based on taking the Taiwanese Capitol building. Like, that's, I, I think that says enough about their willingness to um, compromise over Taiwan with foreign powers, they're, they're just not going to do it. So I believe them when they say that. I believe Biden when he says that we would come to Taiwan's aid. If he, he's the guy in charge, so he would have to give final authorization for military action. Um, even though, you know, Congress is supposed to declare war, but in the current era, you just send some troops via the war powers and whatnot, and then Congress gets sort of uh, blackmailed into supporting the war effort. Not that they would oppose it at this point, and that's become pretty uh, clear to anyone looking at their voting records, but I believe 
now more than ever that if there was a war between China and Taiwan, America's going to get drawn in on day one. Now, that's to my great misfortune, uh, but a lot of people are going to be happy about that. You know, I just got to be honest with myself on that one. A lot of people are going to be in support of that. So I guess they get what they wanted and I get uh, screwed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I believe both sides on this one. And would, it's pretty obvious that both of them are telling the truth on this one, even though even though both of them tend to lie a lot, you know. Uh, I, I can barely trust a word that comes out of my government's mouth, and the Chinese are notorious for propaganda. But on this instance, oddly enough, you can trust both of what they say. You can trust what both of them say. So it's strange, but very telling, and very useful information to have. Uh, definitely very useful. But uh, that's the Biden town hall that made its way into this episode. And then there's our other story, which is a military coup in Sudan. So the we, we talked a little bit about Sudan. We talked about their political crisis a while ago. They've sort of been in a low-intensity political crisis ever since they overthrew their dictator, uh, al-Bashir. Um, but they sort of had things moderately under control. We talked about their political crisis, which is sort of the escalation of the wider, low-tier political crisis that they've been in since the post-dictatorship. Um, but we talked about it, and we talked about how it resolved itself when the president sort of stepped down. Well, not stepped down, he sort of backed down from the issue, and things resumed to what they were supposed to be. And that was sort of a separation of powers. And the civilian government, instead of fighting each other, uh, they just went about their business. It was a very strange thing to cover. I don't remember the details uh, in exactly. I just remembered that it was a struggle between the president and I believe it was parliament as well. I can't remember exactly how it went down, but we covered it, so I guess, I can't remember now, but you can look back in the episode when I talked about it, and it was resolved, for the most part, we talked, it was, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it was resolved enough, I'll just say that, it was resolved enough to where we could sort of move on, and they did too, in Sudan, uh, and we speculated on potential destabilization in Sudan and what that would mean for their neighbors, but they avoided uh, the crisis getting worse. And so that was a good thing. And we talked about how all of that mess that was about to be created was avoided. But now we have a new political crisis on our hands in the form of a coup. The military of Sudan has taken power in the country from the civilian government. Put mul multitudes of political leaders have been arrested and a state of emergency has been declared. Although, although the military promises elections are planned for the summer of 2023, I believe they plan for them to be in either June or July. But that's a long time because we're in October. So you're talking, what, three quarters of a year before the next elections? 
that's a long time for people to sit in a military dictatorship. That's a long time for the military to get used to being in total control. That's a long time for something to go wrong. It's a very, very long time for something to go wrong. Uh, namely, from the outside coming in. Because we know, based off the responses to, say, uh, Myanmar and their coup, that other countries really like getting involved in the affairs of other countries. Uh, so I imagine the Sudanese aren't exactly going to be left alone on this issue. Uh, so there's potential for things to go wrong from the outside in. But the bigger issue is going to be from the inside out. Because I'm pretty sure there are large numbers of people that are unhappy. And the reason I know that is because large protests have broken out across the country. And even more are expected to follow. Uh, so there's already large-scale unrest in the country following these moves by the military. Now, General Abdel Fattah Burhan, uh, the leader of the coup... He justified his actions by basically shifting all the blame to the politicians and the civilian leaders. He accused them of infighting, which politicians do, and incitements to violence, which politicians shouldn't do, but, you know, they might have done. I'm not entirely sure on that, but that's the accusation. Uh, so those are his accusations justifying his actions and, well, seizing power from these people. Uh... But now, the country, in light of these moves, runs even closer to the risk of civil war than it did when we talked about its political crisis a few months ago. Um, so that's the situation in Sudan right now. But because that's the situation in Sudan right now, it once again opens the door to the prospect of a destabilized Sudan along with all that, that means for its neighbors. And so we'll sort of get into a re-speculation re of kind of the same thing. Um, we talked about a destabilized Sudan and how destabilized countries sort of have open doors for other people to, to just walk through them uh, when they're like that. But in the case of this instance, there's the threat of civil war, which um, creates a much more dangerous environment where you have that sort of issue where people are shooting at each other in the territory where other people are going to be able to walk through. Uh, case in point, Iran and Russia and the United States and Israel and Saudi Arabia just walking their troops through Syria during their civil war. Now, I don't exactly expect Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or the United States to get involved in a Sudanese civil war, but South Sudan might. If Ethiopia recovers, it well, actually, even while they're at war, Ethiopia might, depending on the factions that sort of, uh, that form on either sides of the divide, whether that's just two or a multitude of them, we might see Ethiopia, who's already uh, in a desperate situation right now, get panicked by certain factions that might be look to be winning the war if there's a civil war in Sudan, and they might send troops uh, and send military equipment to the other side 
and interfere. And it, become an, it becomes an intertangled mess because then you have two civil wars for the price of one. And that's just, that's even worse than the destabilization we talked about. We talked about Egypt using the situation to just walk their military through and basically establish an occupation all the way down to the Ethiopian border where they then unload uh, their missiles on that Renaissance dam that currently threatens Egypt's existence as a functioning state. Certainly a functioning state with over 100 million people. You can't have that with a dried up Nile River. Um, That's what we talked about. We talked about other countries sort of just walking in and establishing operations there for various purposes. But if there's a civil war in Sudan, that changes the calculus in the ways that I sort of mentioned. Egypt will still take advantage, but that's a much more dangerous scenario you have to deal with instead of walking through with relatively little opposition to your military. Uh, You're talking about either having to shoot your way through or you'd have collaborators. If you're if you bolster the side of one faction and you help them secure a line of territory, they might help you, but then you still have you still have to fight the other side, and if the other side wins, well now you have an enemy on your border. And it's it's a mess. It's a real mess. And we might see Egypt get involved in that civil war for the same reasons as Ethiopia. That Ethiopia might even though Ethiopia is in a civil war, but get this, Egypt is not in a civil war right now. They might fall into one if they let the Nile go. If they let the Nile question be answered by Ethiopia and not themselves, they might fall into civil war if they lose the Nile. So that's a prospect that they don't want. They don't have to have that prospect either. The trick is getting rid of the dam. They have to get rid of it. It's clear that Ethiopia is not going to slow down on filling up the reservoirs Um, which would allow more water to go through to keep the Nile, you know, bolstered up at relatively normal levels of water flow. Ethiopia is filling up those reservoirs as fast as they can um, for reasons. I guess they either they really, really want to deliberately screw Egypt over or they just don't care what the consequences are for Egypt and they're haphazardly screwing Egypt over. Either way, Egypt gets screwed over, and they're going to want to not be screwed over. How do you not get screwed over? Well, you have to get rid of the dam. If Ethiopia is not going to slow down, and if they can't be trusted to slow down at this point, the filling up with those reservoirs, you got to get rid of the dam altogether. That's That's your only option. Either that or you conquer Ethiopia, which you might be able to do. They're in a war, but there's a whole Sudan between you and Ethiopia. That would that alone would stretch your logistics, especially if Sudan isn't a willing participant in your war effort, like, say, the Civil War scenario, where there's battle lines, and those battle lines might haphazardly fall over your logistic lines, your lines of supply, and that creates a danger for any military force that you would send to Ethiopia's border. So, they can't conquer Ethiopia. They might be able to conquer Sudan. 
especially if Sudan falls into civil war, they, if they fight the factions piecemeal, they might end up with an empire again. And from there, they can bomb the dam and leave Ethiopia to its turmoil. Really, that's another option. Uh, an option that I, I'll be honest, I didn't really think about until now, but that's an option if they conquer Sudan. I mean, they have to get their military within range of Ethiopia somehow, and having a base in Sudan and a number of supply hubs in the country that would enable you to project military force from the Egyptian homeland all the way down to the Ethiopian-Sudanese border, which is still undefined, you know. They still disagree on where exactly that border is, Ethiopia and Sudan. You can exploit that. Perhaps you can even exploit the fighting uh, by having mercenaries in the case, like what Turkey does, where there's fighting and they send in mercenaries. We might see Egyptian mercenaries fighting on this either sides of this war. We might see Ethiopian mercenaries if they don't want to fight directly because they already have a civil war of their own to deal with. But a Sudan in civil war opens up a whole new can of worms and maybe even a Pandora's box. Um, but which one it is will remain to be seen. Um, because there's, there's still the possibility that they pull back from this political crisis like they did the last one. But I'll be honest, this one seems a bit rougher. Because uh, you'd have to... The only way that you're going to get out of this is if things go well... Until the elections, on top of the elections going well, which would mean that no one could contest the vote in any meaningful way. Every, virtually everyone would have to accept the vote, uh, but more importantly, the military would have to accept the vote. So that's, again, a lot of time and a lot of potential for things to go wrong. So it looks like this one might kill Sudan, this political crisis right here. It just might kill Sudan. But there's the prospect that they make it out alive on the other side. Uh, and if they don't, if they fall into civil war, they're going to get eaten up by their neighbors. Uh, whether that's Ethiopia, or a resurgent Ethiopia, or a Egypt on a war path aiming to destroy the Renaissance Dam. And we don't know which one that's going to be yet. Uh, that's the trouble with speculating through conflict zones. Uh, it's almost as hard as walking through them without getting shot. <laughs> but those are some of the prospects we, we can look at and observe just, well, just by looking at them. But I, I don't know. It seems, it seems Sudan is stuck. Uh, as a, you know, between a rock and a hard place that they managed to slip out of before, but now there's an even bigger rock in an even harder place. And I, it, I'll be honest, doesn't look like they're getting out of this one. Uh, and it's coming at the same time that we have an increased chance of seeing a showdown between Egypt and Ethiopia. The longer things goes on, the longer things go on, and the more time Egypt has to procure weapons and train its troops uh, 
and the more time Ethiopia has to self-destruct, especially if they're still losing the war, technically, to the Tigray, then that increases the chances that Sudan, in a political crisis, would get caught in an Egyptian military offensive. In, in a last-ditch Hail Mary attempt to get to the Ethiopian border. So that they could destroy the dam. And that's... That alone would be something that would be really hard to recover from. Because, naturally, the response is going to be to fight back against the Egyptians. Or at least, you might have one faction in the civil war fighting back against the Egyptians and the other fighting for them because the Egyptians have lined them up with gold. They've lined their pockets with gold. So now you have one faction fighting for the country and one faction fighting against the country because the country's in a civil war and now there's foreign interference. That is that is a mess. That's a nightmare. That is an absolute nightmare. But the longer things go on, every political crisis Sudan has runs the risk of getting caught in a situation like that. Uh, similar to, and I, uh, the best example, again, is Syria. Where, yeah, you're if you're the Assad government, you're fighting to put the country back together, but the rebels have sided with the foreigners to fight you back. Now, luckily, none of your neighbors are actively trying to conquer your country. You have Iran, uh on your side, so you're not exactly getting conquered uh, by the invading army, but that's that's a very lucky scenario given the given the neighborhood that Syria's in. Sudan will that there's not going to be too much interference on that one. Uh, there'll, there'll be lots of talk. There'll be lots of. Uh, calls for this and that uh, there'll be lots of attempts at mediating a peace but ultimately there's going to be a lot of talking and not a lot of action we might see some countries send in small military contingents that aren't going to do too much the civil war goes on that leaves the neighbors and the neighbors to the to the west are fighting a great war in the sahel Neighbor to the north wants to get to neighbor to the south, uh, that being Egypt wants to get to Ethiopia. Even further south, you might have South Sudan take advantage of you in a glorious revenge because they seceded from you and now they can take some territory from you. It's That's a mess. That is a whole mess. We, we might see a partition of Sudan if that happens. It's, well, now, that's a, that's a whole lot of speculation, but the door is open if they fall into civil war. And uh, they, they have elections in 2023, the summer of 2023. That's a long time for things to go wrong. They can still pull back from this. They, they do like they pulled back from the last political crisis. They can still pull back from this. This one's just going to be harder. Uh, things have to go pretty good for the next what seven months they can go good but they have a civil war to their south and a mili a rearming neighbor to their north that's not a good combination uh to be dealing with for seven months but they can pull back 
So we'll 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 be rooting for Sudan, but the possibilities of Sudan getting screwed are there, and they're very very present. And that's Sudan. Now we're going to talk about Eswatini. Uh, Eswatini has had its own bout of major unrest in that country, uh, namely between the pro-monarchy and pro-democracy factions. 29 people have been killed since the unrest began in June. Over 80 have been wounded uh, in just the latest surge of this unrest. So even more have been wounded since the summer. Uh, Internet and social media apps within the country have been shut down. Protests have been banned in the country, and many have been shot. And not not all of them killed, but a lot have been shot. The country's security forces even ended up firing at nurses when they used live ammunition to try to break up the crowds, and that's probably where most of the, the deaths have come from. And it's, it's a mess. This chaos has sparked efforts by Eswatini's neighbors, to send envoys to help the government de-escalate. Members of the South African development community have also sent envoys. They're, they're sort of the, the leaders of this effort in sending envoys. Um, everyone in every one of their neighbors are trying to de-escalate. I believe South Africa is trying to de-escalate as well. Uh, Eswatini is in an interesting situation where their country is sort of enveloped by South Africa. So you have Eswatini and it's like a, a, a ball, a, a little island of territory within a sea of South Africa because like they, they're on all sides they're surrounded by South African territory. Uh, they're a small country but it's just an interesting thing to look at on a map. But there are, in this chaos, there are emerging though not yet prevalent, fears that the country might descend into civil war. And that would potentially destabilize other countries in the region, which, given what we've discussed, would be in line with what we're... Oh, goodness. With what we've observed happen in countries on the north of the continent. And we were just talking about the possibility of this happening to Sudan... And what that destabilization might mean for their neighbors. Looking at look at Libya, look at Ethiopia, look at the Sahel. Destabilization in one area destabilizes everyone else around them. To lesser degrees, but the destabilization is there. And in the case of the Sahel, Nigeria has that bad. They're just rocked with constant insurgencies and gunmen and pe- kidnappings and even secession in the secessionism in the south of their country uh it's it's a mess with Ethiopia they're literally fighting a civil war uh Somalia and Eritrea have troops on the border because uh, they they don't want the conflict to spill into their zones their zones into their zones and their countries. Uh, Libya has the Libya has the luxury of foreign interference in a civil war with mercenaries. Now they they 
called for those mercenaries to leave the country. The two sides of the Civil War have agreed to the mercenaries leaving. Although I haven't seen confirmation that the mercenaries have left. Which is sort of a similar situation to the Armenia-Azerbaijan War. Where there were calls for Turkish mercenaries to leave. But it took them a while to actually leave. So we'll see. Um, but that just shows the degree of foreign influence in this country's civil war. Libya has had it bad. Um, but you can look at those countries in the north of the continent to see how this destabilization affects everyone around them. So it's very natural that the countries surrounding Eswatini don't, namely South Africa, don't want Eswatini to be destabilized, and they certainly don't want it to fall into a civil war. The possibility is there. Although much less of a possibility than in Sudan, but democracy and monarchy are at each other. Those two factions are at each other's throats, and they both have moderately large support in the country. So we'll just have to watch, wait, and see. But lots of conflict. Right now it's pretty small. Right now it's at the ground level, and you have other larger conflicts simmering in the back. But conflict appears to be on the horizon and it'll it'll be very very interesting all right we i know it gets a bit dark talking about the conflict every episode but my last episode may have been war is just as important as peace but remember peace is just as important as war so it'll be very very interesting to see what the peace looks like on the other side of these conflicts and i'm very interested to see what it looks like. And, I mean, I, I keep saying it, but I am. Because that's the world we're going to be living in, and that's sort of the the idea of what the spheres of influence are going to look like after these conflicts are over. What does the peace look like? But we, we can't see that until the war is over. We can't see that until the conflict simmers down a bit. But it'll be very interesting to see. But... That is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world, the world's changing. It's going through a, going through one of those conflict phases. I guess rebellious child phase for uh, an entire civilizations around the uh, an entire civilization around the world. Uh, that being human civilization. But the world's changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus. Servus.